Hello and welcome to a Christmas special episode of Studio Geeks. I'm Ron and I'm Mon. On this watch new episode, we're featuring Happiest Season, The Christmas House, The Lego Star Wars Holiday Special, and Jingle Jangle: A Christmas Journey. We will be discussing spoilers for each of these films. So, if you haven't seen them yet, watch them and then come back to this episode. We start off with Happiest Season. To preface this, we don't usually watch Christmas films. That's not a tradition for us. So this was a whole new experience. I think the last Christmas film that I can remember watching was probably Iron Man 3. And yes, that comes. That was in July. Like most people, we caught this film mostly because of the hype surrounding it. It's a film which features a lesbian couple starring Kristen Stewart as Abby and Mackenzie Davis as Harper, her partner. Abby is not a fan of Christmas. She has a traumatic past attached to this time of year. Harper on the other hand is from a small town where Christmas and Christmas traditions are a huge thing and she is desperate to, to take Abby back home to meet her family. There's only one big problem. Harper is not yet out to her family. She's basically told them that Abby is her roommate and it leads to all sorts of shenanigans once she arrives home. It doesn't help that Harper brings this information to Abby on the way to her house. So Abby has no time to prepare. And it's made worse by the fact that Abby is actually planning to ask Harper's parents for permission to propose to her and she's going to do it on Christmas day. So much for that plan. She's even bought the ring. Also starring in this film is Aubrey Plaza as Riley, Harper's ex. Dan Levi as John, Abby's temporary pet sitter and a writing agent. The film is written and directed by Claire Duval and also co-written by Mary Holland. So what is the hype about this film? We usually don't get Christmas films about queer characters. Not only does this film center a queer character, but their relationship is kind of the motivation for all the events in this film. I agree with you. With this kind of cast, this kind of hype, and this film is on Hulu, it's making a queer Christmas film mainstream. Does it live up to the hype? Well, we enjoyed it. In fact, we started watching the film, we stopped it because we thought we were going to do some work, and then we just couldn't stop watching. It's the kind of film that really draws you in because you're kind of wondering what's going to happen next. It's got a little bit of everything. It's got humor, it's got drama. There are lots of sweet emotional romantic moments. There's also some strong messages which need to be shared in today's divisive world. But I like the pacing of the story. That's what really worked for me. You don't get much setup time, but you don't need it. This is a couple. They've been together for a while. That's all you need to get into the story. It rather swiftly moves to the action. And the action is for the most part really funny. Once Abby and Harper get to Harper's parents' house, it's hilarious because they think that Abby is just a roommate. So they're kind of treating her a little bit weirdly, especially because Harper has managed to tell them Abby's traumatic past. So they keep treating her very strangely. It's hilarious but it's also a little bit disturbing. Like you do not want to hang out with these people. The way the parents deal with Abby it's like handling her with kid gloves but she's an adult woman and she's had to face life and situation on her own but i think it's also a reflection of how these people are quite sheltered and cloistered maybe a little bit narrow minded and Abby just goes along with it because she loves Harper and you know what they say right you don't just marry a person you marry the family 
when you meet this family though you're like dump the person because as well meaning as harper's parents try to be it seems like they latch on to very particular aspects of abby's history that resonate with them but they get the context wrong so they keep calling her an orphan which is technically right but she lost her parents when she was 19 it's not like she grew up in an orphanage and they keep asking her you know was it like this when you grew up in the orphanage and that's not what happened she was technically an adult and it's all these little moments that make you wonder whether they're actually listening or whether they've got their own script in their head and they're working towards that as we know the holiday season can be very stressful and harper's mom she's in charge of setting up this huge party and Harper's father is running for mayor. He needs to get this donor on board. So there's a lot of stress. So the family sort of has to show up as being this perfect, idyllic American family. And it's obvious that they're not because they're just human beings. And there's no room for error. And that's not how people work. That's not how families work. Especially not during the stressful holiday season. There are all these little insights you get as you meet more members of the family. So there's Harper, who's obviously very much the favorite child. But then you meet Jane, her older sister, who is very quirky, quite different, and seems to be treated like the IT guy. And then we meet the eldest, Sloane. Now Sloane seems to be very well put together. She and her husband seem to have very similar temperament. They've got these two children who never seem to smile. From the looks of it, they appear to be this picture-perfect nuclear family. But for her parents, Sloane has become something of a disappointment. Anytime Sloane is introduced to anyone, she's introduced as a family person. Her previous qualifications as a lawyer are forgotten. Her current entrepreneurship is forgotten. It's almost like because she didn't follow the family script, she's no longer the favorite nor that loved. And this kind of scripted lifestyle, it's not something that you can continue for a very long time. We start seeing the cracks early on, but by the end of the film, it's full-on broken. All this makes the film sound quite dark and depressing, but it's really not. It's the nuances and the little character aside that make you realize that not everything is as picture-perfect as the family would like you to believe. There's an underlying thread of love that used to be, but isn't there anymore. And then there's Abby, who doesn't exactly know what she's doing with this family, how to fit in with this family, especially since they don't know what her connection is to Harper and what her future intentions are. Throw into the mix Riley, Harper's ex. Now, Abby doesn't know much about what happened between Riley and Harper, but she immediately finds herself gravitating towards this woman. And we can't really blame her. Yes, Harper is cute, but Riley is quite stunning. Riley is this elegant, brave, strong person. She's a go-getter. She has not allowed the small-mindedness of the town that she's from and the one that she lives in to get in her way. And she's looked up to. Her parents have accepted her and even Harper's family, they look up to her because she succeeded. She's a doctor, she's well-known and she's out and proud. That's something Harper has never been. And that, as we find out, was the actual rift between Harper and Riley. It just brings Riley and Abby even closer. But despite everything that happens, in the end, we get a happy ending. But is it though? So let's talk about that ending. Because there has been so much discussion about it on the internet. In fact, I was surprised that one simple Christmas film got this much traction among viewers on the internet. What is going on? This film is essentially a coming out film. 
the coming out part happens very late into the film. In fact, at some points, you begin to wonder that it's probably not going to happen at all. They'll just survive this Christmas and maybe this relationship between Abby and Harper may not even continue. But in the end, Harper does come out. In fact, pretty much every family member has come out with some kind of secret or the other. Be it a secret desire to learn karate, an impending failed marriage, a love of being quirky, or the fact that trying to put up a facade has become the father's one and only aim in life because he was worried that his family wouldn't be proud of him. So there's a lot of soul bearing, but really happens like within the last 15 minutes almost of the film. And after it all, Abby accepts Harper. She still goes through with the proposal and we get the happy ending. But why do we think it may not be such a happy ending? Because Harper isn't a worthy girlfriend. Hush. But it's true. Let's look at it from the beginning of the film. The film starts off with Harper and Abby on a Christmas house trail. It's so obvious that Abby doesn't want to be there. As we've mentioned, she does not like this time of year. She doesn't like to celebrate Christmas that much. She's obviously there just to please Harper. And nothing about this trail is going very well either. And then when Harper and Abby break away from the tour group, then Harper insists that Abby join her on some random person's roof so that they can look at all the lights. It's a beautiful view, but Abby didn't want to do that. So it becomes evident that in this relationship, Abby is very circumspect. She's very content with what she's doing with her own life. But Harper's always pushing her, pushing her to do stuff that maybe she's not very comfortable with. Now, there's one thing about being in a relationship with somebody who helps you break out of your shell and spread your wings. And there's another thing to be in a relationship with somebody who just wants to get their own way. With Abby and Harper, it always felt like Harper just got her own way. True, that's one way of looking at it. And then what happens? Harper is the one who insists that Abby goes and meets her parents. Abby is not initially looking forward to that. She does turn her down, but then she changes her mind and she agrees. Wouldn't that have been the perfect occasion for Harper to explain that she hasn't come out to her family? She doesn't know why, but she'd still like them to meet Abby so that they can become comfortable with the idea that this wonderful person who is Abby, in her words basically, is their daughter's partner. But she doesn't do that. She waits till the last moment. Abby can't get out of there. They're literally in the middle of nowhere in Harper's car. When Harper mentions that, yes, she is still in the closet with her family. That seems a bit unfair on Abby. Because by Harper being in the closet and taking Abby to meet her family, she essentially puts Abby in the closet as well. There's this really funny moment when Abby is hiding in a closet while she's trying to get to Harper in the house. And Harper's mother finds her in the closet. It's a humorous moment, but it's also very obvious that this is exactly what's happening in this relationship. During the Christmas day, Abby gets so frustrated because Harper is spending so much time with her friends, especially her ex, Connor, who is obviously the family favorite, and Harper isn't letting Abby in. And at one point, in the middle of a party, Abby actually calls it off. And you think this is it. She's seen the light. She's now going to go running to Riley, who is obviously the better choice. But she doesn't. Because Dan Levi's John gives this amazing speech about how everyone's journey is different. While Abby's journey is one way, his journey was completely different and Harper's journey has yet to begin. And it's a very touching moment and his words are very powerful. The writers have written a great speech, but it is underdone by the fact that Harper is not worth it. Throughout this film, Harper doesn't come across as a nice person. 
it's not just the fact that she's being difficult about the situation she doesn't do anything to redeem herself because when she is finally outed which is not a good thing to happen she immediately denies it and if it was just the first time and something that happened to her so she acted out in the moment i can understand but that's exactly what she had done to riley when they were young and she was doing it to abby again and you can just see how crestfallen abby is and how riley kind of feels a little bit validated for feeling so bad because harper clearly hasn't changed it's completely fine to be an adult and not having come out to your family because a lot of families are like that they're too conservative they're too narrow minded and it's just a protective skin that's fine but the way harper treats abby that's the problem having said all that claire duval writer director of this film had some interesting points to make about why she decided to go with the harper abby ending one reason why she went in this direction was because queer films tend not to have happy endings for the central queer couple Now it's not like no queer film in the last 10 years has but for the majority of the time we do see it's like very yogis or somebody breaks up or somebody finds somebody else so she wanted Abby and Harper to end up together she also said that we're basically meeting Harper on the four worst days of her life so this isn't really a reflection of what Harper is like usually And I found that to be an interesting point because there must be some reason why Abby is so desperate to hang on to this relationship despite Harper being quite awful to her during this entire break. And another thing, now if you saw any of those tweets about this film, you would know that a lot of people were shipping Abby and Riley. Honestly, we felt the same way. Dump Harper, be with Riley. But there was another reason why Duval did not want to go with that pairing. In films with queer characters we tend to see a third queer character only in the sense that they come in as a second love interest she didn't want that so duval wanted to showcase a queer relationship that was not romantic and it was just a friendship because queer people tend to be good friends with other queer people and you don't get to see that that often also the way the relationship progresses they do stuff in queer places They go to the queer bar which is lots of fun and very colorful and so interactive and engaging and it's such a contrast to the very straight bar where Harper and her friends have met up which is stark and dark and everything is in its place so yeah these are the few points that Claire Duval made which has honestly made me change the way I looked at this movie I appreciate the creative point of view but it's hard to be invested in somebody who doesn't have any respect for their own partner and that's what i struggled with when it came to harper we completely understand all these things we completely understand the thinking behind keeping the abby and harper relationship but we need to root for harper which we don't do because we may have met harper on the four worst days of her life but we needed some build up to show that she wasn't always like this there's no point telling us after the fact but all in all this was a fun experience yeah we've been quite negative about it but this was a fun immersive joyful cozy little experience and it just happened to have queer characters i think my only criticism with this film would be that it was extremely white at least they tried to do something a little bit different sloan's husband and their children are black so that's a good thing The problem with having a film that's centered on a family is that you pretty much always get everybody of the same race and if your family is white you're going to get a lot of white characters but looking past that this was a great fun christmas movie to watch another film that came on our radar was the christmas house 
This is a Hallmark movie which we thought was centered around a gay couple who were returning home to celebrate Christmas. Uh, turns out we were wrong. Okay, so let's start by saying that we did not know Hallmark Christmas movies were a thing until this year. I have never seen this many ads for Hallmark Christmas movies. You could not escape them. The reason why this film came with a lot of hype was because in 2019, Hallmark actually pulled an ad from their network which featured a lesbian couple in it. So for that same network to actually not only include a gay couple but have them as part of the main cast for a Christmas film seemed like a huge progressive step forward. Yes, and the marketing definitely focused on this gay couple being the center of this film. If you watch the ads, you don't actually see the rest of the characters. You do see them. If you showed me the poster for this film, I wouldn't recognize it because where was Jonathan Bennett on the poster? <laughs> he was in all the trailers, but he's definitely not there on the poster. And then we sat down to watch the film. First scene of the film? Who's this guy? <laughs> we quickly found out that the Christmas house was actually about Robert Buckley's Mike Mitchell and not really about his gay brother, Brandon. So Mike is a TV actor. He's playing a very popular character. Unfortunately, his show is on the rocks. During the Christmas season, he returns home. His parents have this rather frosty welcome. They're not telling them something. They're very keen to revive the Christmas house from their youth. But why? Those machinations come to the fore as Mike's parents discuss more about their current situation. Their mom has just retired. Retirement life is not working well with her. So they want to revive the Christmas house one last time before his parents split and they sell the house. And the house is being sold by Mike's childhood crush, Andy Cruz, played by Anna Ayora. Brandon and his husband, Jake, played by Brad Harder, they don't really have much to do in the story which was even more disappointing because he kept reading these interviews where Jonathan Bennett was so excited about the fact that there was a gay couple and this was going to start a whole new revolution in Hallmark movies. Yeah, no. So Brandon and Jake, they have their own worries during this Christmas season. They've been trying to adopt for several years. Three adoptions have fallen through and they're currently in the process of another one. They're really, really holding out hope, but they won't tell their family because they don't want to get them excited. I love that they have their own little story and that their relationship is normal, it's completely accepted, nobody makes any comments about it. But within the context of the film itself, you don't see these characters really doing anything. They don't drive the plot forward. They have these small moments of emotional beats, but that's it. They're very much in the background. In fact, Jake hardly has any scenes at all. Jake's only triumph in this movie is when he manages to get the lights working after a whole bunch of them just blew out, but that's it. Jake is a really sweet character. He's the kind of partner who comes home to the parents and he's the immediate favorite because he acquiesces to everything. He's very excited about everything. Whereas Mike and Brandon having gone through creating a Christmas house and that too, they have a very, very short deadline now. They are not that enthused, but Jake is like ready to go. The relationship between Brandon and Jake is very sweet. And I like the fact that we see this physical closeness between them. They're hugging each other, they're holding hands, they're kissing each other. There's no reason for anybody to make a big deal about that. They're just an accepted part of this family. The thing is, again, with a lot of these films that aren't usually catering to queer audiences, it does feel a bit tokenistic. There aren't any other queer characters in this film. Especially when the driving romance of this film is Mike and Andy, a straight couple, because we have never seen that before. 
what surprised me most was that Brandon and Jake were pretty much written out of every scene. When Sharon Lawrence's Phyllis Mitchell, who is the mom, tells Mike that she's struggling with retirement, she and the father are separating, she's selling the house, it's just Mike being told this. Did Brandon do something wrong? Why isn't he being told all this? This is stuff that affects him as well. But then later, it seems like Brandon already knows this stuff. So was he told in advance? Was he told in between scenes? What is going on with this writing? It seems like the film was created around Mike and his relationship with his parents. And then suddenly they were like, there's room here for some more characters. Let's make them gay. And let's market that so that people will actually tune in and watch this movie. Which is exactly what we did. We sat down to watch this film because we had heard so much about the first gay couple in a Hallmark movie. And it did feel like a letdown. From the get-go, it felt like we tuned into the wrong film. But then it was the right film and just the wrong couple. So then we have to question, was the marketing right or was it wrong? The marketing was smart. The marketing was smart, but the thing is that now I feel like I can't trust Hallmark. Oh, I agree with you. Yes, I'm excited about the fact that we're getting more queer representation in Christmas movies. We've just seen Happiest Season, which also had queer representation. But Happiest Season was about the queer couple. They had four queer characters in that film. This one, it just doesn't do what it says on the box. And that's not fair. This feels a bit like queer baiting, except we do get queer representation, but it's just not as important as you made it out to be. No, I agree with you on that. If Jake and Brandon had just spent a little bit more time on screen, if they'd been involved in the family dynamics, in the family announcements, I would have been fine with that. We don't need to see them being in the relationship. We already know that. The best thing about the way Jonathan Bennett and Brad Harder played these characters is that they felt very lived in. You felt like they had been together for a long time, that they'd been trying to get a family started for a long time, and that his parents have had Jake in their lives for a long time. But all of that is implicit. All of that is due to the acting. It's not there in the writing. It's not there in the direction. It's not there on the screen. Also, how come we don't get to see Jake hanging out with Mike? Like, if he's been a part of the family for such a long time, why doesn't he have a relationship with his husband's brother? Why don't we get scenes with him and the parents? We don't even get scenes with Brandon and his parents. Mike is always a part of every scene, though. So, yeah, this is a straight movie with a gay couple in it. Also, coming off of Happiest Season, the production values on this film were a bit of a shock. Is it just me or are Hallmark movies all that weird fuzzy color? What is happening with that? Do they use a filter? I don't know. It's just really weird looking. And you could tell that it was a Hallmark movie because of that. It feels like your glasses frosted up or something. It's so strange. Like it's a completely different experience. It definitely is. Having said that, I quite liked Andy Cruz, the character. She could have come across as just Mike's ex-crush. She could have just come across as the bitter single mom. But she's not. She's so happy to be back in town. She's so happy to be helping the Mitchells. She loves having her son around. And she's kicking off her own little enterprise. She was a fun character to watch. And I also like the fact that she's Latina. Because this film, again, is centering a white family. So we needed somebody outside of that to be a person of color. And we do get to see her and her mom. And they make all this beautiful Mexican food. So yeah, that was great to see. And there's this point in the film where Mike is trying to help Andy get her business off the ground, get the word out there. So he makes an advertisement with her son. 
and when he shows it to her he's very excited but she's grateful but also a little bit upset that a he didn't ask her and b she's not in it so i like that little moment because a lot of times with these rom-coms or these romantic films the women come across as very one dimensional it's like they only want one thing they only want the big wedding or they want the great honeymoon no andy is a character in her own right with her own thoughts and ambitions she gets to be a complete character which you don't always get to see in films like this and i really really appreciate that the ending of the film was probably one of the cringiest ones that i've seen this year i guess it's par for the course for a hallmark movie i'm not sure what i did like is that far too often hollywood or american films denigrate the small town experience it's always about getting away from there going to the big city mike decides to balance both his worlds and i really like that about this film he decides to commute back and forth from new york and his hometown so that he can keep his family house he can be closer to andy and her son so i really appreciate the fact that they kind of changing the messaging in 2020 yeah those are the nice little bits that really made me think that somebody had put some thought into the writing but it's just the rest of the film that you're like what happened there i mean like even the denouement everything gets solved on christmas day and i'm like i get that it's a christmas movie but not everything is going to happen on christmas day who is working on christmas day it was certainly a learning experience for us this is our first hallmark christmas movie and hopefully next year there'll be loads more queer characters and more representation in hallmark films when we'll be talking about that i hope so i hope this is the start of many great things Moving on to a very different kind of Christmas movie, the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special. So we've never watched the Star Wars Holiday Special before, but we have heard of it. Apparently, that's an experience that is to be missed. This, on the other hand, was a very, very enjoyable film to watch. So this film takes place during Life Day, just after the rise of Skywalker. So we see Rey training Finn in the ways of the Force, but she's just not happy with how things are going. Finn is getting a little bit frustrated because he's not catching up as quickly as he would have thought he would. So Rey decides to spend more time with the Jedi texts. Now she knows them by heart. She's spent so much time studying them. But nothing seems to be happening. So she finally decides to go to an ancient Jedi temple where she hopes to get answers. And that's when the adventure begins. So while Finn, Rose, Chewie and Poe are busy working on life day celebrations, Rey is traveling through time to find the answer she's looking for to be the Jedi master she wants to be. This film is quite short. It's only about 45 minutes long or so, and the entirety is basically recreations of iconic Star Wars film moments, but none of them play out quite as you remember them. This film does not take itself too seriously. It does not take the canon too seriously either. And honestly, that's what you kind of need in a year like this and the way Star Wars fandom has been. You just need to take the foot off the gas and sit back and enjoy yourself. And this is a really fun ride. You get so much more personality from these characters and you get to see a different side of them. We've always seen the Star Wars characters in the middle of battle. There's death on the horizon. Things are going bad. There's a death star. There's Starkiller Bay. Something is going to happen. But here it's just a whole bunch of people just hanging out, being friends. The worst thing that can happen is that the tip you feel get burnt. Rey's ride through time gives a different perspective to these momentous occasions. Sometimes she makes things worse, sometimes she makes things better. She ends up taking credit for a few actions. 
Well, she deserves it. <laughs> like when Ray falls into Luke's lap, quite literally, as he's flying his X-Wing Red 5 into the Death Star Trench, there she is telling him, yes, that's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Listen to him. Use the force. And then she's like, yes, I'm the one who helped destroy the Death Star. Technically, you did. <laughs> You're kind of right. I also love Binary Sunset watching Luke being dragged into this crazy battle and he's just like, what is going on? And there's this montage where she falls through so many different times and brings together so many different versions of our favorite characters. So at one point there are two Hans, there's so many different Stormtroopers and Clone Troopers. There's like three Obi-Wans, all of whom go, hello there. I just love it. It's just so fun. This movie just had us smiling throughout. It was so sweet and adorable. And as you said, it's just light rare. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And you need that. Honestly, after The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker, there has been so much discord among Star Wars fans. Nobody can agree on anything. And the amount of discourse around this franchise makes you want to not engage with anything to do with it. But this one, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's like a warm cup of java juice. While there's a lot we love about this film, there's a couple of things that I have to point out. First of all, was there any need for direct Christmas imagery in the film? Star Wars is universal. The whole point of being a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away is that we can all relate to it. Everyone across the planet can relate to it. I didn't mind the main cast decorating a tree in the Millennium Falcon. That was fine. I had a problem with a Christmas tree showing up in the Jedi texts. There was no need for that because the place that Rey goes to, the Jedi Temple, actually doesn't have any Christmas imagery. So why did we need that in the book? And the other argument I have is that, was the film leaning too much into nostalgia? This has been an argument against the new trilogy. It's leveraged nostalgia heavily. We have the same problem with The Mandalorian, especially with the second season, which is drawing on characters from the animated shows. In this film as well, would we have enjoyed it that much? Would we have been drawn in that much had they been on a different kind of quest? I understand that criticism. But unlike in The Mandalorian, where this is a new character in the franchise, he is going on his own journey. And to keep relying on characters that are already established and storylines that are already established and that may not have been seen by large numbers of fans, that becomes a problem. And recently I have been reading that some fans who have been watching The Mandalorian have felt a little bit lost during this season because they haven't watched the animated shows. Die-hard fans like us have seen whatever we can see because we love Star Wars. But some people just got into it because of the sequel trilogy. Some people got into it just because of Mandalorian. I don't think that works with the Lego Star Wars holiday special. Because it is nostalgic. Life Day is about being with your family. A lot of Star Wars characters are now dead. And the only way you could be with them is through the past. So I like the fact that Rhea actually gets to hang out with Anakin and Darth Vader and Luke and Obi-Wan. It's fun. I agree that it's a lot of fun. I just worry that the new creators of Star Wars properties are bordering on being unimaginative when it comes to creating their own characters or their own worlds. Well, we're going to have to see. Mandalorian has been renewed for season three. So whether they'll take it in a different direction, we can only hope. As for the rest of the franchise, who knows? One of the things that made me a little bit sad while watching this one was that the main trio did not return to do the voices of their characters. 
I'm actually not surprised. Yes. So the people who did come back, Kelly Marie Tran, who came back as Rose Tico, which was lovely. Anthony Daniels, who plays C-3PO in every version. I don't know how that man does it. Willie D. Williams, who had a very, very tiny role as Lando, but it was great to hear him again. And Matt Lander returned from the Clone Wars as Anakin. So that was nice. But the main three are voiced by other people. And they do a passable job. But you can't help but feel the absence of John Boyega, Daisy Ridley and Oscar Isaac. <laughs> While Ray's voice was quite similar in timber and intonation, Finn was nothing like John Boyega. That voice is too distinctive. And it took me a while to figure out that that was Poe. Because his entire look is different. He's not even wearing his usual general outfit. He's wearing a Christmas sweater, an ugly Christmas sweater. I do like that he's really funny and kind of emotional, but it's not Poe. <laughs> this is a very different version of Poe than we've seen. Maybe when he's not fighting the First Order, he's quite chill and quite emotional about everything. But yeah, it's a bit sad that the three people who have been such an important part of the Star Wars universe and have been the reason why so many diverse people have now become Star Wars fans didn't feel like they were connected enough to this franchise anymore to come back for the holiday special, which was such a warm and fuzzy film for viewers. I agree with you. One thing I really liked about this film was how they connected the Jedi experience to some of the aesthetics that we're used to seeing in Star Wars The Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels. The Jedi temple that Rey goes to really reminded me of the one that we saw on Lothal in Star Wars Rebels. But unfortunately, the film itself didn't connect to the animated series at all. Yeah, that's a good point. Despite the fact that Matt Lanter was voicing Anakin, that's the actual only connection with the animated universe. You're right. While we see one shot of the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda, in the end, when Rey sees all the different Jedi and Padawans, she does not see Anakin and Ahsoka. She does not see Kanan Jarrus and Ezra Bridger. You're so right. I was actually looking for Ahsoka and I was just like, did I miss her? She's really easy to see. So there's no way you could have missed her orange face. Oh, yeah, you're right. You know, it just makes the universe so much more expansive when you include those elements that people have become huge fans of. Ahsoka is such a favorite amongst people. And in 2020, you had better know that. All we needed was a glimpse. One little animation of that wonderful character. That's all we needed. Don't even need to get a voice. I mean, that was one of the reasons why The Rise of Skywalker's Demi Moore was so wonderful. Rehearing all the voices that we've heard for years in the animated films, in the live action films, it just made that film and Ray's journey part of this massive universe. And that's actually one of the reasons why we've been enjoying Mandalorian season two. It's connected to all these other properties that went under the radar. We only caught up with the animated shows this year. But it's making it bigger, it's making it livelier, it's making it more lived in. And yes, it would have been great to see that in this film as well. But I'm thinking that maybe the reason why they didn't include the animated characters was because the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special was very tied into the sequel trilogy or just the live action films. So maybe that's the direction they went with. And maybe the reason why Man Atlanta was playing Anakin Skywalker was because they couldn't get Hayden Christensen to come back for the character. But yes, since this is an animated film, it would have been nice. <laughs> the lack of a nod to the animated series aside, this was a romp. This was a cute little romp. And in the end, it's all about friendship and it's all about love, which is exactly what Star Wars has always been about. 
It's about connecting with your found family. And that's how Star Wars Rise of Skywalker ended. And that's how this film ends as well. A very fun watch. And honestly, I can't wait to watch it again. And the last film in our Christmas special is Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey. This is a Netflix film, which I hadn't really seen advertised much. But then it kept popping up on my Twitter timeline. People were talking about how amazing it was. And I thought, well, I can't wait to watch it. Especially because it's not got a regular white family in the center of the story. We have a black family. You don't get to see that usually. So yes, I was excited to watch this film. This film stars Madeline Mills as Journey, our protagonist. This is Madeline Mills' very first film. I am floored and excited with what this little girl is going to do in her career. We also have Forrest Whitaker as Jeronicus Jangle, Keegan-Michael Key as Gustafsson, and Ricky Martin as Don Juan the Doll. So what is this film about? Jeronicus Jangle is an inventor and he's made a name for himself by making these extremely inventive toys. Jeronicus has been working on this one toy for years and he's been waiting for this one final ingredient. When it arrives, he knows that his life is going to be made. We don't know exactly what's in that ingredient, but we know what he uses it for, to bring Don Juan the doll to life. Now, Don Juan is an absolutely amazing animatronic doll who has quite the personality and he's a little bit self-absorbed. When he hears that Geronicus' plan is to make a million other Don Juan dolls, he doesn't take that too well. He wants to preserve his individuality. And he does that by needling Gustafsson, Geronicus's helpful aide and an aspiring inventor on his own, to steal Geronicus's plans for his dolls and take Don Juan with him. This pretty much ruins Geronicus's life and leads to him closing his beloved shop. Unfortunately, after that, his wife also passes away and he just can't get over that heartbreak, which leaves his poor daughter Jessica on her own. Some 30 years later, we see Geronicus. He's an old man. His beautiful toy shop is now a pawn shop and he is barely keeping it together. He has a young aide, but it's not the same as his relationship with Gustafsson, who has now become a massive toy maker and a 28-time toy maker of the year winner. Into the mix comes Journey, who is Geronicus's granddaughter. Not that he actually knows about her. Journey decides to turn up at his pawn shop and wheedles her way into his life. And everybody is the better for it. This film is so unique. It starts off like any other fairy tale movie. These two kids on Christmas Day, they want their grandmother to read a story to them. She opens a book. And this pop-up book is basically the story of Geronicus. But all the characters are characters of color. The main cast are mostly black actors. And it's just such a refreshing new look to how Christmas films have been. How children's films have been. For far too long, there's only been one demographic being catered to with Christmas films. And I'm glad that Netflix of all people is finally spreading its wings. This is an absolutely gorgeous film. It is so colorful and the props are so detailed. You can't help but look in the background for everything that's been made because there's so much stuff here and the sets are gorgeous. What I like is the aesthetic and the cinematography of the film make this little town look quite artificial. Beautiful but artificial. And there's a reason why. It's because it's a pop-up book. So it's in the story and that's how it looks to the kids. And that's how it looks to us. And that's why the segue between animation and live action really works in this film. I love the look of this film so much I ended up doing some research into it. So it turns out that director David E. Talbot had actually envisioned this film to be a musical production for stage. That explains the look and the camera movements. 
A lot of it is very theatrical, but it also explains why the songs are staged the way they are. Some of the criticism about the musical sequences was that they didn't really push the boundaries of cinema. I don't know where that's coming from. Is this another case of holding marginalized communities at a higher standard than others? It might be because I read one review where they said that the title of the film was too long. There are five words in it. Wow. Okay, let's move on. Let's just ignore that ridiculous kind of criticism. We don't care about that. We thought the songs and the musical sequences were lots of fun to watch. They were very energetic. They were very beautiful. They popped off the screen and you felt like you were part of that scene. But during my research, I did find some other interesting facts. One of them being a really cool thing, which makes me want to watch this film again and again. David E. Taggart named all the stores in Cobbleton after African inventors. And I think that's amazing. One of the things that he was saying during a set store video that is available online, please do check it out, was that we get to see a lot of inventors from Europe and America and Britain, and they're very well known. Inventors from other parts of the world tend not to get the same kind of recognition. So when he wanted to make a world, that's what he did. He gave them the recognition that they deserve. And there's some more inspiration happening throughout the film. There are very specific African dances that are included in the dance sequences. You can actually notice it quite clearly in the snowball fight. We'll come back to the snowball fight, but a little segue into the costumes. Now, these are very obviously Victorian era costumes because this film is set during the 19th century. But one of the things that you may notice if you look carefully is that all the costumes have African prints on them. I love the way Talbot and his crew worked on this film. Their vision is amazing. But coming back to that snowball fight, they could have used a very generic score or a popular Christmas song during this very fun little snowball fight. But they went in a different direction. They went with Bisa Kade's song Asu. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing any of that correctly. I love this song. It has been one of my favorites in 2020. I have heard it so often. It's in my Spotify list of top songs of 2020. It is really good. Do check it out. I loved that snowball fight scene. It was so endearing. The characters are so larger than life. You have these extras who are having the time of their life. And when the song comes on and you can see Geronicus and Journey really connecting and having so much fun, I just want to hop right into my screen and give this entire movie a hug. Literally everybody loves that snowball fight. There is nothing that you can dislike about it. It is such a lovely scene. But I was also reading that most of the extras in that scene actually owned stores in that area where it was being shot and they joined in. Well, you could tell that everybody was having a great time because that scene has so much energy in it and it really fits with the ethos of the film, which is quite tragic, but it's never melancholic. There's this underlying energy, a sort of hopeful feel to it throughout the film. And this snowball fight sort of is the epitome of that. But it's also the moment when Geronicus really lets go because he's been mourning and he hasn't been able to overcome the loss that he has felt, not just for his shop, but for his wife and eventually for his daughter who had to move away from him because he was not able to take care of her. And because of this silly little connection that he has with Journey, just through this snowball fight, he becomes a different person altogether. He becomes more hopeful. We have not seen that from him since the beginning of the film. Madeleine Mills is such an adorable ball of energy in this film. She brings out the best in Forrest Whitaker, who she shares the most scenes with. You can just see that he can't help but melt when he's around his granddaughter because she's just so cute. And Forrest Whitaker, listen, this guy is an Oscar winner. Obviously, he has talents by the bucket load. But even then, just watching him and seeing this character who is so overcome by his grief, he's so believable. 
But what gets me the most is, I did not know he could sing. I am floored. My God, can this man sing. What a beautiful voice. And he has quite a few songs. I thought maybe he'd have a few notes here and there. But oh no, he has a few songs. And he has to sing in harmony from time to time. And he does a great job. Make it work. That song, it got me in my feels, but it also made me want to move. It had the same energy as Hamilton, where you could feel yourself marching to that beat and you felt inspired. What an amazing song. Forrest Whitaker sings Make It Work with Annika Noni Rose, who plays the older version of Jessica, his daughter. She has some voice on her. It is so powerful and it just elevates that song to a whole new level. That's the kind of power anthem you don't expect in a family movie. Not only does it work, but you can't stop listening to it. I have to say that the ladies in this film, their voices are something else. Oh my gosh. Incredible. In fact, this entire movie kept making me wish that this was a mini-series. Because I would love to see all these characters again. I want to see what happens in those 30 years. Who is Jessica now? Is she an inventor? She seems to suggest that she's not. But... I feel like that's not something that's going to go away. Oh, I definitely think Jessica's an inventor. She may not be making toys, but she's definitely doing something in her workshop. The thing about Christmas movies is, I always thought that Santa Claus had to be a part of it somehow. But here, we don't really have a Santa Claus. Despite that, Jingle Jangle still manages to capture the spirit of magic and Christmas. And it does that through Geronicus because he kind of, by being an inventor and a toy maker, is the film's version of Santa. He's just a Santa who's lost his way. And he has lots of very sweet little elves who are helping him, including Edison, who it took me some time to grow to care about, but he was a sweet kid by the end. I love that entire tunnel scene. It's such an important moment, not just for Edison, but also for Geronicus, because that's when he rediscovers his magic. And when Edison successfully brings himself and Journey and Buddy 3000 through that huge fan, you can just see how Geronicus is so proud of all of them. And Edison is so relieved to hear that he is actually an inventor. It's a beautiful, sweet moment. And there was another little subversion, which I'm sure was something that was in the back of the minds of the creators, is that Edison is the pragmatic, realistic one, whereas Journey is the fantastical, science, magic kind of person. So while Edison is like, no, we shouldn't be doing these things, Journey is like, this is the only way and we are going to do it, we are going to succeed. Far too often we see female characters, young or old, being the pragmatic ones, being the ones who are supposedly the naysayers, the party poopers. But honestly, it's just because they don't have a choice. They have to be practical. But in this film, being an inventor, being a magician, that's what gets you ahead. And I really like that. It just makes me happy over the last few years that you keep seeing films and TV shows where you get these young female protagonists who get to be fanciful, who get to be different, who get to take on the roles that have been almost always ascribed to young boys. And it's great that little girls now are getting to see films like Jingle Jangle because they get to see themselves be mathematicians and magicians. We didn't have that when we were growing up. What you watch and what you consume impacts how you think, impacts how you foresee your future. Because for so long, girls have been pigeonholed into certain kind of characters that we consume in popular media. It really affects their confidence, their imagination, their ambition. But now they get films like Jingle Jangle. 
And I also love the magic in this film. It's all based around formulas and things like belief and surrealism. Everything has a formula and I just love that about it. Films like Jingle Jangle and if you've read Witch Hat Atelier, they give you a completely different idea of how magic works. And it's so refreshing because magic has been represented in very narrow ways for a very long time now. We need a new perspective and these are giving it to us. This film just made me so happy, <laughs> even though it was quite sad sometimes and really hit the emotional notes. But just knowing that there's a whole generation of kids who are going to call this film their Christmas movie just makes me so, so happy. I have to say that the last half hour had me in tears a few too many times. I was just like, I can't see my screen through my tears. Please wait. <laughs> It is beautiful, it is inspiring, and it is such a refreshing take on a genre of films that has become staid and that we have been avoiding for a while. If this is the slate of Christmas films available, yeah, sign me up, I'm watching in December. Bring it on! What do you love about Christmas films? And what do you think about our choices? Let us know! You can find us on Twitter at studio underscore geeks or send us an email at studiogeekspodcast at gmail.com we hope you enjoyed this episode and see you next week. The Stereo Geeks logo was created using Canva. The music for our podcast comes courtesy Pixar Bay. <laughs>